From Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethiel, the Emerian of Pedan Emmon, the sister of Laban, the Emerian. Minion, um, to be his wife. So I have Becca do it normally. And I, I get to avoid these hard to pronounce names. Verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, um, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all his body, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out um, with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she, when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, and but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came into the field and he was exhausted And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, well, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As I start this message out, let me start with my thesis statement. This is going to probably scare some of you off if you're interested in ministry and preaching, is to have a thesis statement, which is a summary of what you believe the Lord is saying in the particular scripture that you are, that you are presenting before the people of God. When I read throughout the scripture and before I write anything of, of my thoughts as I, di- as I dissect it, I ask myself, what is the thesis? If I'm teaching Sunday school, if I'm teaching Wednesday night ministry, I'll ask after we get done with a book, what was that book about? You have one sentence. How would you describe it? This one's easy. Because I just need to go to the last verse that says, thus Esau despised his birthright. The story of Jacob and Esau, it's not about being clever or you know, being a well-rounded person versus a sporty person. It's this. Don't lose your affection for the Lord for a bunch of lentils. Do not lose out on the blessing of the Lord because we are so focused on the things of this world. Last time on Patriarchs, that's a series we're in right now. A patriarch is the male leader of a tribe or of a people. The patriarchs in the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons, are known collectively as the patriarchs. They are the fathers of the Jewish people, but the founders of the fathers of our faith as well. 
A patriarch is a male leader of a people, and these specific folks are the ones who are chosen by God to carry on a promise and a blessing. Let's talk about the blessing of God, why God blesses us, period. God does not bless you to give you an easy life. God does not bless you to give you a comfortable life. You are blessed to bless others. God's blessing is about his purpose, his overall purpose in all of the cosmos, which is to gather a people for himself. We see that physically in the Old Testament with the Jewish people. In the New Testament, our eyes are open and we see spiritually God bringing his family, getting ready a bride for his son, Jesus Christ. The patriarchs, they are a part of that blessing and they were blessed to be a blessing. In season one, I kind of see this as a TV series. Season one was Abraham, the man of faith. He sought the blessing of God so much that he left Mesopotamia and came to the land that God would show him. Season two, we sublet this out to the BBC because it's very few episodes. That's Isaac. Isaac has been called a, a ordinary son of a great father and an ordinary father of a great son. Um, Isaac was the son of Abraham. He was born of the Spirit's power. And his story takes off right after Abraham, but it's a very short story. Almost right away, it goes to his son, Jacob. But we need to remember that Isaac, he was the child. He was the promised child spoken of by God. And he is an important link in that chain. And he gives Isaac, he repeats the same promise he told to Abraham. And he also gives him the same promise twice in the, in the first time he meets with him and the second time he meets with him. And it's this, and it's so powerful, faithful of the Lord. He says, I will be with you. Do not fear, I will be with you. It's one of the things a psalmist, David, he was always so enamored with God because he's like, if God's with me, you know, really, who can be against me? It's what the New Testament writers would say as well. If God be for us, who can be against us in Romans chapter 8? It gives us courage beyond ourselves when we're overwhelmed and we have that time in the darkness where we tell God, it's, the burden's too heavy, it's too much. He tells us, do not fear, I will be with you. And that was Isaac's story. Isaac wasn't like his father Abraham and he wasn't like his son Jacob in which when people were coming against him, he would fight right back. In fact, he would shrink away most of the time, but he had this trust if God has promised this, I won't depart from the face of the earth. And in our reading today, we see that him and his wife, they are dealing with infertility, just like his father and his mother dealt with. But he decides he would pray. He will pray. Instead of trying to find some workaround, he would trust the Lord. Third, not third, but sorry, third, we are now in the third season. We're already done with Isaac. Like I said before, we sublet that out to the BBC. Season's done. We're in season three right now. And this is probably on the CW because there's going to be a ton of episodes in this one. Jacob, who will be renamed Israel, which is what we call the nation of the Hebrews to this very day in the Middle East. We call it Israel. Think about that. Jacob has a lot of problems in his life. We're going to go over a lot of them. And as today, we talk about God choosing Jacob over Esau. And by the time we're done with this part of the series, this season, you're going, to be, you're going to be asking the question, why? Because he does not live a perfect life. He make mistake after mistake after mistake. But God's, God's choice is irrevocable. God's calling is irrevocable. Jacob had a twin brother that he didn't always get along with. That's an understatement. I have a brother named Brent. 
Brent has a brother named Jason. That's pretty cool. Um, just how it works. And uh, me and my brother, so Jacob and Esau, they had a lot of sibling rivalry. And um, I, me and my brother, we had a bit of, we had, we had fights. We had some real fights. I was, my best, I was the best man at my brother's uh, wedding. And um, during my speech, I said, you know, me and, my, me and my siblings, you know, we used to fight a lot. Now, I just want to let everybody know, if you didn't draw blood, you just had a disagreement with your sibling. <laughs> I think Esau and Jacob, they're like, we could tell you things. Because even though me and my brother, we've had, we had some, like, epic fights. Um, Friend, if you're watching, I hope you don't mind me sharing some stuff, childhood stories, but I'm going to anyway. Um, so we'd get, we'd get into some like fist fights. And I remember one time Brent had uh, some darts and he threw them at me. And I thought they missed me. And uh, they didn't miss me. One like stuck in like the vein of my, my, my leg. I didn't notice until it felt like there was water running down. And um, there's another time me and him, we were wrestling around and I accidentally almost snapped his arm. He had to go to the hospital and everything. But we have absolutely nothing on Jacob and Esau because there was never a time in my life where I did not love my brother Brent and where we were not, where we would know that if we were in need, we just call each other. Jacob and Esau, though, thanks to unfortunately Jacob's actions, would be estranged. Jacob is terrified of his older brother because of what might happen. Seeking the blessing. The rest of chapter 25 and really the whole story of the patriarchs is a story about looking for and living in the blessing and finding the one who blesses. With that said, if we are to understand Abraham's life right now, we have to accept that as we seek the blessing, we need to know the one who blesses. You know, one last week, um, Brent Owen came up here and he was sharing with us about what he'd been told that if our aim is to be happy we won't find it. But if our aim is to please God, we will find joy and happiness. Jacob's life shows the misery associated with trying to get a godly outcome using ungodly means. And that's actually a bit of what we go over today. There was this movie in the 80s with Bridget Fonda. Yeah, Bridget Fonda, that's right. It was called Jacob Have I Loved. I don't suppose anybody's seen that. It's a pretty lame movie. And uh, Bridget Fonda, really, a young Bridget Fonda's in there, and it's coming, and it really the title of the movie is based off of uh, Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, in which it says, Jacob have I loved, and Esau I have hated. In the movie, um, Bridget Fonda's character, who in the world remembers what the name of her character was, she's the older sister, and her younger sister, who's beautiful and talented, she always feels overshadowed by her. Maybe it should have been something with Leah, but whatever. I didn't write the movie. Um, And uh, so there's this point in here where she just kind of gives up, and she just decides, I'm just going to have this unhappy, bitter life. Every blessing goes to my younger sister, so that's just how it is. And finally, somebody just calls her on the carpet for it and tells her, It's not a competition. Her being happy doesn't mean you have to be miserable. If you're miserable, that was your choice. We look at Esau, and we are sometimes want to be, the technical, the theological term is fatalist, meaning that if God has this decision, then I'm just simply automaton. I'm just following the path that God has out for me. No, your decisions matter. Esau's decisions matter, and there is no blood on his hands other than his own The call and choice of God is real, but also is our choices, and we have no excuse. We have this story today to to be reminded that while God is sovereign and is working out his will, our choices matter. 
in this chapter, there, in the rest of this chapter, there are no heroes. Not Isaac, not Rebecca, who had their favorites, who showed the sin of partiality. Not Esau, of course, we know in Hebrews chapter 12, Esau has been, is called godless. But Jacob is also not the hero in this story either. Not at all. Now, he, he, there's, a, there's a prophecy in here in which his mother is told that the younger would serve the older, but that doesn't mean every action you get to take in the meantime is somehow justified. In fact, the incredible misery that follows because of his actions, which certainly would not be something you'd want to live through. There is no hero in this story. Actually, there is one. It's the one we see weaving throughout this, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the only hero. He's the only hero, period. So as we look at this, we see one dual prayers in verses 19 through 24, verses 25 through 28, double trouble. And my third point here in verses 29 through 34, duet of desires. I had a bit of a time this week trying to figure D words that mean two and to put them in my point. So I hope you appreciate it. Um, Dual prayers, dual prayers. We pick up in uh, verse 19. Um, when we left off last time in chapter 25, a couple weeks ago, um, we see after Abraham had died, it said that God blessed Isaac. Though he is the child born from the power of the spirit, which is what Galatians chapter four says. Last time we were in chapter five, that we left off with verse 11. Abraham had passed away and God blessed Abraham. It would seem in the narrative sense, this would shift now to Isaac, but almost immediately it changes to Jacob. Isaac was the son born from the spirit and the link in the chain that God was making with this family who would one day through this family, Jesus Christ would be born by the way of the spirit. But with that said, Isaac's life is a bit boring. So we move almost right on to Jacob. We're told that he is 40 years old in verse, verse 20. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethiel, the, I'm not going to repeat all that, as his wife. Um, <laughs> I should have spent some time on pronouncing those. But anyway, um, he's 40 years old. And you might wonder, I mean, I've always wondered, why include his age right here? I mean, a lot of times we read in the scripture, especially as 21st century Americans, and there's things that the people who are reading this, when it's being written, are getting. They're really finding it very important that it just kind of flies over our heads. The fact that he's 40 actually is a pretty significant detail. See, he's 40 years old when he gets married, and two weeks ago, or last week, I preached on finding a bride for Isaac. That Isaac trusted his father Abraham, and by extension, his, his father's servant, And I asked the unmarried folks in this room, who would trust your parents to find you a wife or a husband? We had certain hands up. Then I said, how many of you would trust your parents' friends? And Jackson, I hope you don't mind me telling this. I heard that Jackson looked over at Nicole and put his hand down while he looked at her. (laughs) He trusted, he he trusted his father, he trusted his family, and he also trusted the Lord his God. Of course, we saw that before this chapter, because when he was brought up to that mountain, his father was very old. Isaac is very young. He does not have to let himself get bound and, and trust that his father, whatever his father is going to do. He has this trust. So 
So why, the, why 40? Because 40 is the age that Esau gets married at as well. But the differences between the two speak everything. Now, I didn't really think much about this. I'm reading in Josephus, the Jewish historian, and his take on this. And he took this almost personally. So he, he looks at that and he sees Esau and it's like, it's like the arrogance of Esau. See, Esau, he didn't care about what Isaac should think or what Isaac would bless. He finds two brides. In fact, not one like his father, but two. He might be Isaac's son, but he doesn't walk in the ways of his father. And we're told that Isaac loved Esau. See, I think one thing that's hard a temptation for us when we've been praying for something so long, not to make it a God in our life because we will crush it. Esau, for whatever reason, the faith of Isaac did not transfer to Esau. And we see that in the marriage choices. That's why we have the, the 40 years old, he, um, she, um, he got married. That's why we have in the next chapter, Esau at 40 years old. And then he has two, two wives and both of them make the life of Rebecca and Isaac bitter. This is what Josephus writes about Esau. He sees Esau really as a spoiled brat. Therefore, taking upon himself the authority and pretending to have dominion over his own marriages without so much as asking the advice of his father. Once again, I imagine it's hard that when you've prayed about something for so long not to spoil it and allow not to be spoiled by it and then therefore spoil it. I, I said this first point is dual prayers. The father and mother pray for, eyes, for, for Jacob and Esau before they're even born. Before they're even conceived, Jacob is praying for, Isaac is praying for Jacob and Esau. Before Jacob and Esau are born, their parents pray over them and for them. Two prayers, one from a father and one from the mother. Parents, your prayers are powerful. Your prayers are powerful. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Isaac prays for his wife and by extension, his sons. And his prayer is in concert with the will and promise of God. They're not simply a couple that's dealing with infertility. They have a promise by God that through their physical family, the Messiah would come. By praying for this, he's not just simply praying for himself, but he's praying for, he is praying because his heart is in alignment with the promises of God. In verse 21, we see Rebekah's prayer. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. 22, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Oh, boy. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. You're in the blessing of God, but you're having trouble. So you're wondering, is this really God's will for me? The answer is yes. This is why we have the word of God, right? He doesn't even have the word of God. He doesn't know what'll happen. Neither does Rebecca, but they have this trust. They have this ironclad trust. And so instead of just worrying, she goes to the Lord in prayer. In verse 21 is the father's prayer. In verse 22 is the mother's prayer. The father prayed that they would be conceived and the mother wants to know why this pregnancy is being so hard on her. So she inquires of the Lord. This last, um, this last week, I've learned so much about prenatal care of twins. I mean, I'm not going to get all of it into this sermon, but I was just wondering, I was like, my, my first question reading this right here, where Jacob and Esau are literally wrestling together in the womb, I'm like, does that happen? It does. 
um, twins, uh, identical twins or, or whatever, however that works, they will fight in the womb. Oh, where's Gwenny? Okay, I was, I was going to have a great, I was like, were you guys fighting in the womb? No. Um, Johnny and Gwenny are twins. I don't know if how many people know this. And um, we've got two identical twins right here too with the first Nell girls. And um, so I was, I was asking somebody I knew who had uh, twins, I was like, did, did your twins fight in the womb? And, and they told me like, oh, they're actually facing away from each other. So that didn't happen. Um, it can happen, luckily, because they're immersed in ambiotic fluid. They can't hurt each other. Uh, I was like, that's good to know. So yep, absolutely can happen. She doesn't even know she has twins. So she inquires of the Lord and the Lord hears her prayer. And he tells her by way of a foretelling prophecy, two nations are in your womb. We know this because we know Israel's in her womb. And then according to the name of Esau, who'd be called Edom, Edom is another nation. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. You know, how often do we worry before you inquire the Lord? If we didn't inquire the Lord, so much of our stress, so much of our anxiety would not be there for us. Sarah's answer comes in the form of a foretelling prophecy. This is repeated throughout the scriptures and the example of God's sovereign choice. He doesn't make his decisions the way we do. We know a bit about his reasoning, but we don't understand anything for who knows the mind of God, but we have the mind of Christ. This would have been disturbing to early readers, though. When they, to early readers, when they hear about the younger serving the older, this is scandalous. And you really don't have to go away from the scripture to even see that because we see amongst Jacob and Esau the problems they have. And then with Jacob's sons, oh my word, they're constantly like, he's favoring Joseph. They get envious, they get angry, they sell him into slavery. And then Jacob himself, when he is going to get a wife, we know he wants to be married to Rachel, but then in the morning it's Leah. And actually, I think I'm going to preach over that again. So when you get to that point, you're going to be like, you already preached this? It's like, I know. I think, it's, I think it's important as we see, as we go along this journey of faith right here. In the morning, it's Leah, and he's furious, as you can imagine. I can't imagine waking up, and it's not the person I, I said vows to the night before. He's furious, and he gets him to Laban. He gets in his face, and you ever wonder why he deflates almost right away as soon as Laban starts talking? Why he doesn't grab him by the scruff of his neck, and he's like, you little... It's because Laban says something to him. He attacks his guilt. That's what the enemy does to you as well. He attacks your guilt to control you. Because if you feel guilty, like a worldly guilt that just makes us feel bad, it doesn't make us want to change, you can be so easily manipulated. And that's what Jacob, he's so easily manipulated because Laban tells him, you know something around here? We don't prefer the younger to the older. And basically telling him, thanks to your actions... Your family is a stink in the nostrils of everybody around here, and it's thanks to you. Oh, man, alive, right? God's, we see God's choice in here, because the young, once again, this, is, this would be scandalous, but here's the thing that God wants to get across. He does not care what this world thinks, and he uses the younger to shame, he uses the weak to shame the strong. You know, the other way around is what people would be used to. The older is served by the younger. The younger serves the older. Nobody, this isn't the Godfather, and nobody wants to be Fredo. God chooses the weak things to shame the strong. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
With Isaac and Ishmael, we had already seen this, but we could have told ourselves, well, Isaac is Abraham's only legitimate son, so that makes sense for him to be the heir. And that would make a certain amount of sense, but this is in our face. Both are legitimate sons, but the younger, younger will be served by the older, and it's because God doesn't care what our taboos are. God's plan is yes and amen. In verse 24, we see God's word coming true. God is never wrong. If someone says they speak for God and what they says does not come true, they are a false prophet and should never be listened to again. God doesn't lie. These dual prayers right here. In these four verses, we saw something powerful. A husband and wife, a mother and father praying for their kids. So many of us here today, the only reason why we're here is because our parents prayed for us. I mean that in every way imaginable too. I don't mean just here in this church service. Some of you, the only reason why you're alive today because your parents prayed for you. You went on that trip and you had no idea what was on that trip, but your parents were praying for you. For those of us without parents, we know that our, sorry, not without parents, sorry. Those of us without children, Our prayers are powerful. We need to have spiritual children that we're praying for. Thank you for praying for the kids who went to camp. We were believing that God would meet with them at camp. We were believing amazing things would happen. Continue to pray for the kids in our congregation. Thank you, Patrick, for saying that because that's what we need to be doing. In verses 25 through 28, we get to Jacob and Esau, and I call it double trouble. The double mint twins, they are not. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. 26, afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when when she bore them. So how many years from marriage to birth? 20 years. Have you ever prayed for something for a year? And it feels wearying, right? Like, God, when is this ever going to happen? 20 years. Incredible. You know, it's often surprising to me when we talk about these siblings, how different siblings can be. There are some siblings, if I didn't see a family picture, I would guess they were never related no matter how much they look like each other. I've met siblings that other than a family photo, I'd have no idea they were related to each other. They grew up in the same house, had the same parents, but they're so different from each other. Well, we know why, because your decisions matter. It's still, still, you know, two identical twins. Josephus believed that they were identical twins. I don't think the scripture bears that out, but I don't think it excludes it either. Josephus said that they were identical in everything other than, you know, Esau being, you know, Michael J. Fox from Teen Wolf and uh, Jacob being, you know, a Renaissance man. Um, I don't know if it bears that out or not, but I know this. They had the same parents. They were raised the same way, but they are so incredibly different from each other. You know, I learned that if they are identical twins, I didn't know this before, identical twins, and we got the personnel girls today, um, you're the same embryo that split. Fraternal twins, I hope you guys don't mind me saying your names and talking, but like Johnny and Gwenny, fraternal twins are two embryos that 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 are at the same time in the womb. With all of the similarities a person can have, every person is their own person. Their choices are their own choices. And here's the thing. It's not that Jacob makes good choices and Esau makes bad choices. They both make bad choices. They are double the trouble, not double the fun. Not like the double, yeah, not like double mint. Verse 25, as I read to you, he's hairy. 
Esau means hairy. It's a, it's a word in the Hebrew that sounds like their word hairy. When it comes to the oldest Esau, the scripture really wants us to know because it says so many times Esau was very hairy dude. I, I mean, like, I, I get it. But at the same time, it says it so many times. I'm like, yep, I get it. He is a redhead who is extremely hairy. Gotcha. Like Michael J. Fox and Teen Wolf. Jacob, on the other hand, they name him Jacob because as he's coming out of the womb, he's holding on to his brother's heel. So they name him Jacob, which means heel catcher or heel grabber. Now, if you're Jacob today, you don't need to change your name. You're not under some curse because it means something different now, thanks to Jacob and what God has done in Jacob's life. But it was, it was almost, it, was almost um, it wasn't a nice thing to call somebody a heel catcher in their day. It meant you were a con man, a scoundrel, a trickster. One commentator said it meant rascal. And I like that one. Jacob was a rascal. I don't know if he was alfalfa or buckwheat, but he was definitely a rascal. Always scheming. They're twins, but different. Verse uh, 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. They may be twins, but they're very different. And, and not just because one has hair like a Sasquatch, but Esau was, a, was an outdoorsman. Jacob, it says he was a quiet, or some of your translations say a mild man. And this has to do with the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word right here is tam, and it means wholeness. So I have often, I've made this mistake. I've always assumed Esau was a man's man, and Jacob was kind of a girly man. And sometimes even when I'm reading the story, any time I have Esau, I do kind of a higher voice. That's not what it means at all. That is just our interpretation because they're trying to translate something in Hebrew into something in English. Um, the word tam, it, means, it really means complete or whole. We'd use the term today as renaissance man. As a person who, he can hunt, he can also cook. He can read, and he can also mess a dude up if he had a weapon. Um, he is a complete, a well-rounded person. And, and once again, not, not, a, not a girly man. Um, it is the same word that is used in Job chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright or tam man? Who, one who fears God and shuns evil. So we might say that he is a Renaissance man. He is well-rounded. In verse 28, we see Isaac and Rebekah committing the sin of partiality with their, with their own sons. Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because, of, because he ate of his game, and, and Rebekah loved Jacob. Um, Isaac and Rebecca make the same mistake, unfortunately, many parents have done for many generations in having one, per, one, one child that they show blatant partiality to. Most parents I know, they do not have a favorite kid. It just, well, they do have a favorite kid, but it changes per the day, how they're doing. Norner James 2.1 lists partiality as a sin. You know what's crazy about this, though, is who injures who in this partiality? Isaac doesn't injure Jacob by, by being partial to Esau. He actually injures Esau because his son becomes the God in his life. And his son can do no wrong, so he doesn't hold his son to the standard. He himself follows. So actually, even by loving, by showing partiality to Esau, he injures Esau. And Rebekah injures Jacob by loving Jacob more than Esau 
and really taking away the affection she should have the Lord to put on Jacob. Because the reason why I say this, you know whose plan it is to get the blessing from Isaac? It was Rebekah's plan. Jacob went along with it. He has a responsibility for what he, do, what he did. But that is the craziest thing. When we start making the good things in our life, the blessed things in our life, ultimate things in our life, it takes away our affection from the Lord. And that makes us, we don't love them as well as we should when we love them supremely. If we love the Lord supremely, we love those in our life better. Two problems, it's double the trouble and double the problems as we look at these two sons. We might see the ways that we struggle in their stories as well. Esau, we know, has not been chosen by God to carry on the family line. In Malachi, it says that God hates Esau. This is a comparison language speaking of the tribes that God had chosen Israel, the nation of Israel, over the nation of Esau, the nation of um, Edom. But in this, God is not arbitrary. He has his reasons, and even now and again, we get to see those reasons play out. About Esau, it says he is godless. He has no concern for, for eternal matters. In Hebrews 12, 16, this is the warning the author of Hebrews says to, those, to his readers, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Normally in the scripture, when it gets ready for a list, it's like a long list of stuff. The writer of Hebrews is like, why go through the long list when I can do shorthand for Esau? He's godless. He has no concern for, e- for eternal things. God had made his decision concerning Esau, but know this, it's not arbitrary. And Esau, within even God's choice, has so many choices in that, he could have decided to live for the Lord and not despise his birthright. He still would have had to have served Jacob, but big deal, you get to be part of the, of the tapestry that God is making. But Jacob is also not the good guy in this story. He was chosen by God, and Esau isn't, but Esau isn't the sole bad guy. A woman came up to Charles Spurgeon when he was preaching on this, and she was telling him, I can't understand how God could hate Esau. And his response to her is, I have the exact opposite problem. I don't understand how God could love Jacob. And that's the thing about the grace of God. Amen. See, if we, think, if we think, yeah, how can, how, can God, how, how, how can God reject people? We think to ourselves, we are entitled to it, and that's not grace. If we're entitled to grace, it's not grace, because grace is unmerited favor. But if we understand this, myself, you, everyone here, every person on the face of the earth who've ever been born, we deserve justice. And every single one of us have sinned in thought, word, and deed. Since the moment we, cho- we could choose between good and evil, we chose evil. But God, in his grace, sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf. And so like Charles Spurgeon says, I don't understand how God, not Jacob, but could love me. With that said, there's a duet of desires as we go on in verse 29. Here's where we come to it. Once once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew. Some of your translations I like say, let me eat some of that red stuff. That's awesome. Because I was like, oh, he must have grew up like me, right? Like not, you don't have like name brand stuff. So you drink Kool-Aid, you don't drink juice. So it's like, what flavor is that? Oh, it's red. (laughs) 
It's like that Sunny D commercial, and they're like looking in the fridge, and like, okay, we've got some, we got some orange juice, we got some purple stuff. It's like if you grew up at the time, you knew about the purple stuff. Some of your translation says, "Give me some of that red stuff." For I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. That's not in your scriptures. What Edom means is red. Jacob said, sell, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob and Esau in verse 29, they're doing what they do. We are tempted when it comes to scripture to ask what if questions. What if Esau didn't sell his birthright for a bowl of, bowl of soup? It's a nonsense question because he did. At verse 29, we see a snapshot of Jacob and Esau's life. Esau is out hunting and Jacob is at home cooking. Neither one of these are good or evil. They're just interests they have. But if, as we continue to read, on, read in here, we see beneath the surface here of what they truly desire. And Jacob, for all of his faults, he desires the blessing of God. And Esau, despite any of his virtues, cares nothing for the blessings of God or God in general. What we find out as we continue reading the scriptures is what we've already read, that we've already read and was told to us is that Esau does not have an interest in the things of God. Um, all for a bowl of soup. I've got a slide up there. So I went, I went around looking, found a few Jewish sites and stuff, because I was asking the question, okay, what was the bowl of soup that, uh, that Jacob made that was so enticing that he was willing to sell his birthright? The birthright, especially as it is described in Leviticus, of course, it would be something similar to that in their time as well, in which you have so many sons, everybody gets a share of the estate, and, but the oldest son gets a double share of the estate. And so the birthright would be that double share of the estate. And so I'm like, what would be so valuable he's willing to um, sell his birthright for? And right up here, the, the top picture really is what it is. In my opinion, that's not red but I, I suppose somewhat subjective. I don't know if they put sriracha in it or something to make it red, but he did something to it to make it red. Below, that's what I think of when I think of the lentil soup, but there's no way it could be this. He didn't have a food processor, couldn't have gotten it that creamy. But that's what I think about when I see that. All for a bowl of soup. How, what in the world is going on in his head? You know, I remember there was a time, you know, once again, another story of me and my brother, Brent, um, is... Uh, I had one of those Red Ryder BB guns, like in the Christmas story. I didn't shoot my eye out, though. I had one of those Red Ryder BB guns. I remember, you know, begging, whining until I got it, just like Ralphie from A Christmas Story. And I had it for a couple, maybe a year or two. And um, one day, um, I come home, and it, it's hot outside, and my brother has two quarter pops. Um, I know pop is a lot more now, but it was like a quarter, like it was off-brand Shackley, or I don't know what the brand was, our family. And I wanted the pop, and I'm like, hey, give me one of those. And Brent's like, um, give, me your, give me your BB gun. It's like the Jacob and Esau thing, right? <laughs> and I'm not thinking how this BB gun is worth a whole lot more than two quarter pops. But anyway, long story short, yes, I sold my BB gun to my brother Jacob Brent Fisher um, for two quarter pops, I, my Red Rider BB gun. Um, all for soup. Our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, they lose paradise because of fruit from a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's often depicted as a red delicious apple, apple and we are all, we're all left wondering, how is that even a temptation? 
Maybe if it was a banana split, maybe then I could understand. Here we have Esau giving up something that is priceless. He has no clue how priceless his birthright really is for a bowl of soup. You know, it's too bad Jacob wasn't the food Nazi here from Seinfeld and just tells him, no soup for you. We're told it's a lentil soup, but the object doesn't really matter. It could have been anything because Esau doesn't really care. He has no desire for the things of God. He has this hyperbolic thing. I am about to die. He tells Jacob, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? See, he's not simply referring to his hunger here. He's saying, I will die someday. So what does the birthright mean? Let me, let me tell Esau. See, Esau was the inventor of the YOLO phrase, right? You only live once. And this is really where he's at because he's only think of the physical things. Right now I'm hungry. Who cares about a birthright? That's a problem for future. This is like, you know, in The Simpsons when Homer Simpson's eating equal parts mayonnaise and vodka and he says, that's a problem for future Homer. I don't envy that guy. Esau has no care of the things of, of God, so he's willing to sell his birthright. But let me tell Esau what this birthright means. You are in a family line that shouldn't exist. Your father was 100 years old. Your mother, I'm sorry, your grandpa, sorry, your grandpa was 100 years old. Your grandma was 90 years old when they gave birth to your dad. You shouldn't exist, but you do because of the power of God. And you're part of this family line where God said, I will give you land and I will make you a blessing to all the nations. And from your family line, as they carry the faith from generation to generation, They'll be conquered, they'll gain their independence, they'll be conquered again, and then one of the people in your family line will be told that though she's never known a man, she will conceive and give birth. A lot like your dad Isaac, who was born from the power of the Spirit, there's no father in this other than God himself. She will conceive and give birth, and you'll call his name Jesus, for he will, save his, he will save his people. And from this person, Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully man, is crucified, raised on the third day, go, ascends to heaven before giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to his 12 disciples. They then carry the message throughout all of Asia Minor to Egypt, to Africa, to the rest of the Middle East, one day, some of these missionaries, they will go to these barbarians on the other side of the world in Europe called the, called the English, and they'll tell them about a God who saves, and many of you come from them. I'm saying you here, people. And then the, 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 the savage Germans are told about the, the, a God who saves them. And from them, from them, as the church gets established there, they have these people to the north in Scandinavia. In fact, one of the prayers in the Middle Ages was, God saved me from the north man because they were so brutal. And God sends a man up there who's known as the apostle to the Northmen. After so many had been martyred, he preaches them the gospel and sets up the church there. And from there, we have the, the church in Europe, the church in Africa, the church in the Middle East, then from there, the church in Asia. And then finally, there's this new world in which missionaries come and there's all these people and they decide in 17, 1776 that we will break from this island. And now here today, you are here today. That is what your birthright meant, Esau. But you're like, a bowl of soup fills me right today. 
this is what I will feed on. I came across this quote from Donald, Pastor Donald Barnhouse and his devotion on this, and I've got that up here so you can read along with me while I have it on here. History shows that men prefer illusions to reality, choose time rather than eternity, and the pleasures of sin for a season rather than the joys of God forever. Men will read trash rather than the word of God and adhere to a system of priorities that leaves God out of their lives. Multitude of men spend more time shaving than on their souls, and multitude of women give more minutes to their makeup than to the life of the eternal spirit. Men still sell their birthright for a mess of porridge. Esau despises his birthright, verse 35. We are told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, not to be like Esau because Esau was godless. That our only and greatest desire If our only and greatest desire are the things of this world, we are walking in the ways of Esau. Spiritually speaking, many today despise their birthright. Their birthright, they've been born again. And the things, the great riches that are in Christ are spelled out for us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. I'm not going to read that for you today. You can read that on your own. But I did split up the blessings of Christ. I've got a slide right here. Here is your birthright in Christ. I want you to understand something. When you love the things of this world, your love for the Lord grows dull. And here's what you're giving up. Every spiritual blessing. Two, the blessings of being chosen in Jesus. Three, adoption into God's family. Four, complete acceptance by God in Jesus. Five, redemption from our slavery to sin. Six, True and total forgiveness. You know how rare true and total forgiveness really is, even in the mind of mankind? Here's what I think is is, is really sad, because there's a certain morality that is in in every generation. And in every generation, true and total forgiveness is nowhere to be found, because if you mess up good enough, there's no going back. Today, if they find out you tweeted something when you were 19, you're done. There is no forgiveness. There is no repentance. And you in Christ have true and total forgiveness that even when you've been following the world and your love for him has grown cold, he calls out to you. And if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The riches of God's grace. And I don't just mean in salvation. Every moment you live, you are immersed in the riches of the grace of God. Everything you walk in, the joys you have are part of the grace of God. The revelation and knowledge of the mysteries of God's will. Before I talked about who has known the mind of God, but we have the mind of Christ. We hear our master's voice. An internal inheritance for the guaranteed of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The ancients would have screamed and begged to have what you have. See, in the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, actually after their time, when the people of Israel, when they were wandering in the desert, and then when they had their temple, they had these different courts you could go into. The outer, outer courts were the, way, the place where the God-fearing Gentiles could be in. Every additional court was a place that privileged people could go in until you got to the inner courts, the Holy of Holies, and only one person once a year could go in there because that is where God dwelt. And if he was not perfectly clean, God would strike him dead. And it was called the Holy of Holies. That's where the Spirit of God dwelled. And now today, you're the Holy of Holies. 
because the spirit of God chooses to dwell in you. It's your birthright in Christ. Here's the world's lentil stew. This is what they want you to trade that for. Entertainment. There is no God throughout the ages like entertainment. There are people who sell their soul for rock and roll, right? I forget his name, blues singer, supposedly had done that. There are people who, and they, don't, they don't care the things that they are consuming, no matter how God-hating it is, entertainment. Sell your birthright for such a ridiculous thing, for fame. I don't know how well you can see this. This is a, a young man named Dylan Mulvaney. I know you probably can't tell because he's dressed up like a woman. Here's the wrong reaction about this is anger, derision, and mocking. Because this is what I see. He's made in the image of God and Christ dearly loves him and he died for him. And for the world's lentil stew, for the world's lentil stew, momentary pleasures, this is somebody smoking weed, give up our birthright, the riches of God's grace, the revelation of knowledge of the spirit of God's will. I've counseled people through addictions and addictions, man, they are difficult. They are difficult. It's like having, I mean, people have talked about having a monkey on your shoulder. And it's so hard because, I mean, for some people you're chemically addicted. And what do you do? You have to make this choice that I will run so far away from that. And it's a constant choice, a day by day, crucifying yourself to your desires because you don't want the world's lentil stew. Too many, too many, neglect or trade away the birth, the birth, this birthright for cheap entertainment, momentary pleasures, and momentary popularity, and passing pleasures. It's a David uh, Gusick quote. Worship team, would you come up at this time? Here's our great warning from this chapter, not to be like Esau, godless, to trade our birthright for the world's stew. Really what it comes down to, and this is something I was out one night and I'm praying about this because I'm like, God, what do you want to do with this? What, what part of this scripture really needs to affect me? And this is what the Lord was speaking to me is that what am I desiring? What am I feeding on right now? What am I feeding on? We need to desire the, the blessings of God and the God who blesses. Has your love grown cold? What is taking that affection away? The worship team is going to lead us in a bit of a song, but we are doing communion today. And during my uh, sermon series on the seven deadly sins when I was preaching on gut, gluttony, the thing I was showing, I wasn't going to do it again today because I've done it twice. I thought three times is too much. And I had, I had the Lord's table, the bread and the wine. It's not wine, sorry, it's juice. Um, simile, God, we don't do wine. Um, bread and, and juice. And on the other table, I had McDonald's food. No diss to McDonald's, but it's the only fast food we have. And I said, what do you want to feed you? What gives you purpose? What gives your life meaning? If you don't remember, it's only, it's only the table of Christ. If you're not feeding on the table of Christ, you'll feed on this world and you won't be hungry any longer for the things of Christ. Be like Esau, godless like Esau. Trying to find your meaning, your significance in the things of this world rather than the table of the Lord.